0: We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice, and therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good. That not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priests would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. So the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace.
1: So if you weren't with us last week, I went through the ritual in Leviticus chapter four and five of exactly how the priests would do that sort of flicking of blood as a cleansing of the temple. Today we're going to build on that in chapter six and seven, and specifically with that, what we're going to find is that in chapter 6 and 7, we actually have the opportunity to uh, go beyond that in such a way that it's going to review the previous five chapters. So in the previous five chapters, we covered all kinds of different offerings, and so this is really an opportunity to sort of catch up there to where they were as well. So we're going to look at that together. Now in order to do that, in our series on Leviticus, we're also teaching us how to study the Bible. And so today we're going to look at a new Bible study principle, sort of an overarching one, which is called exegesis. Take the first word, X, out of. When you're reading a passage, what you're trying to do is find the meaning in that particular passage and read out of it, exegete from that passage what it intended to say. In contrast, eisegesis is when I take my opinions that may or may not be related to what's really said and I read them into the text. So when you come to a passage, a lot of times you'll see me circling words and showing you connections. What I'm trying to show is that this wasn't just sort of deep thoughts by Chad. This is coming out of the text. And so we can all find that. So here's some questions to ask when you're in the Bible. Are there reasons in the surrounding sentences, paragraphs, or pages or passages that confirm my interpretation came from the text rather than reading into the text? In fact, even with uh, well, the reason we're giving these principles, even Christians, as you're weighing a particular interpretation of a passage, may disagree. Last week, many of you sent some uh, questions about, Chad, you said that the disciples may not have been in the upper room. They may have been at temple. I've never heard that before. Even as we're teaching through hermeneutical principles, you know, whether it's Drew or or Doug and I would get to a passage and say, No, where did you get that? Because the word house uh, seems to mean a house. And when the book of Acts talks about temple, it uses the word temple. You say, Yeah, but it also says, Jesus says, Did you not know I'm in my father's house? speaking about, yeah, but that came out of the book of Matthew, not of the book of Acts. Yeah, but a couple of verses earlier it said the day of Pentecost. Where do you go on Pentecost but temple? And so I realized last week I went pretty fast on a pretty revolutionary new idea that maybe they weren't in the house. So I'm going to cover that many weeks from now when we do the day of uh, Pentecost. I still might be wrong, uh, but I want to try and give you some principles so we come to a passage, you know, how are you weighing this? And how when you're talking to another Christian, you can say, show me where you got that. And these are some principles to help guide us in that process. The principle last week, though, that we ended with is the idea that instead of the fire of the altar coming out from the altar and consuming the dead sacrifice, now at Pentecost, the fire comes out and rests upon the living sacrifice because we become living sacrifice in how we live for Him. Now in today's passage, we're covered chapter six and seven. The main thing here is that God wants us to demonstrate what we celebrate. If we celebrate God as reconciled with us, why won't we demonstrate reconciliation with our brothers and sisters and family members? If we celebrate God's patience with us, why would we not practice patience with others? Why do we not demonstrate what we celebrate here at a communal meal? So in order to do that, we're going to look at four phrases that summarize these two chapters. How do we as Christians demonstrate righting wrongs? How do we fan the flame of our relationship with God? How do we learn how to commune or dine with God? And then how do we learn how to do the wave, which will be in chapter 7? So let's begin. In chapter 6, verse 1 to 5, how do we right a wrong? Now, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by, a couple of examples, lying to your neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or about a pledge, or about a robbery, or if he's extorted from his neighbor... If he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely, then there's some things he needs to do. He needs to admit he's sinned, realize he's guilty. Then he needs to restore what he has stolen in all these different ways. He goes on and gives some more details. Besides restoring what you took or broke, you need to restore its full value. Add one-fifth more to it. This will be your trespass offering. So you bring with, as we talked about last week, your trespass offering was the animal, but you also brought the silver or the gold to restore the valuation of what you had uh, harmed. And so in this way, you not only got forgiveness from God and you celebrated that, but then you demonstrated that by making restitution or reconciliation. And for those of you who work in lawsuits or work as lawyers, you'll recognize this is basically God setting up damages, that when you harm somebody, you need to fully pay back what you had taken plus add 20% for damages, one-fifth. And God was putting in play this idea of forgiveness and restitution in a trespass offering. And he ends this section by saying, command Aaron and his sons, the priests, saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. Now again, the word law here is the first use in the entire Bible of the word Torah. And as I mentioned last week, the word Torah, law, literally means the way of an arrow. So God is saying, my Torah... My law is the way, the way you get forgiveness from God. Here's the way you make restitution if you've harmed somebody. Here's the way you should handle your attitude. Here's the way you should handle the situation. Here's how you should handle your money. So the Bible is not just how to get to heaven, and the law is just not something for the Old Testament, and now we're sort of done with that. The law is good, I just can't keep it. But the law is still the perfect way for me to live, and the law gives me a way or a path that I need to live. And so I sin, which means I don't hit the mark. And so sin is not just something that keeps me from heaven, true. It's also something daily in my life that needs to be confessed when I see the law, the way of the arrow, and I recognize that in that situation, I wasn't very humble. In that situation, I wasn't very thankful or very kind. And that's the role the law plays in our life. It shows us the way that we are to live the Torah of our living. That's what the law was designed for. So let me get into some real details here, because I think here, as Christians, we need to learn how to right the wrong, how to go the way of the arrow. I remember when I got home from college, I was in ministry for the first couple years, and I'd remembered this guy in college who just had a little bit too much power, He was in charge of getting into the certain media room, and I'd been there every night, and I'd left my wallet with my ID up in that media room doing some video production. And so I showed up, I said, listen, i got a last-minute thing, i got to go get my wallet. And he just sort of took his power and in in no way would let me in. Very inconvenient to me, I'd literally seen him every day for 60 days, and now he wouldn't let me in, but I couldn't get what I needed to get in. And I sort of tore into this guy last week of college. Hadn't thought about him for years. I remember studying a passage about the need to reconcile with anyone you've harmed. And for whatever reason, God brought Adam the Biscuit, that was his nickname, to my mind. I'm like, no, God, please don't make me apologize to him. And God was just working on me. You need to demonstrate what you celebrate. And I remember writing this letter and apologizing and owning my part. And I remember God released me of some things that I'd been contaminated with I didn't even realize I had. Then when Facebook came out about 10 years ago, suddenly you and I were introduced to people we hadn't seen in 20 years. And I was amazed that each person that asked to connect, many of them, God would prompt me to say, do you remember what you did to Jenny? Jenny was one a girl who was a good Christian girl. She was in my ninth grade biology class, and I was ruthlessly made fun of her for less the whole semester. I mean, just ruthless. And as she tried to befriend me, I went, God just said, you need to apologize. And I was embarrassed. I mean, it's no wonder I contained that memory. I was just embarrassed at how I treated her. And so as we were talking through messenger, I said, she's just reaching out. How's it going? Let me tell you about your family. I said, before we start, can I apologize for how I treated you? She goes, well, I kind of remember that. I'm like, there's no way you didn't remember that. I am so sorry. What can I do to make up for what I've done? And she was just so gracious. But I was trying to make right to right the wrong that I had done here. And there's three parts to this that are all mentioned here in these passages. Part one is forgiveness. I need to recognize I am missing the mark with God. I am sinning, missing the mark. And so forgiveness is, God, I agree with you that I'm in the wrong, and I agree that your way is right, and I did not live up to that. And God, I need your forgiveness. But many Christians stop there. Because I've now been forgiven, I can do whatever I want. Now, there's three parts to this. Writing the wrong is, one, I recognize I was wrong and need forgiveness. Part two is restoration. I recognize I've not only harmed myself and God, but I've contaminated my neighbor. Notice he used the word neighbor twice. You lied to your neighbor and that affected him. You cheated your neighbor. Therefore, I need to recognize I've not only broken my relationship with God, but with other people. I need to go make some things right. I need to recognize or even examine how my actions may have hurt somebody who I divorced, who I defrauded, who I cheated, who I deceived. And forgiveness from God is not an excuse not to, not to deal with that. It's the motivation to go and deal with that, to demonstrate what you celebrate. And even that's not going the full way. To right the wrong includes not only restoration, but restitution. Then it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, he shall restore what he's stolen or the thing he extorted, and add one-fifth more to it. I mentioned last week a misunderstanding I had with a friend. I was talking to another guy at lunch about a year ago, and he said he had a similar misunderstanding. And because of some miscommunication between he and a friend, he decided to write a pretty large check. And the check was intended to say, despite our miscommunication, I want you to know our relationship is more important than this issue. Also, he didn't think he necessarily owed that. He could have easily argued the other way. The other person owed him restitution. But he decided that he wanted to put his money where his mouth was to make sure that their, their relationship was restored. And he said that moment, years later, became the catalyst for them to stay in connection because he restored trust by making restitution. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't exploit people. It doesn't mean that we don't demand restitution from other people when they've harmed us but it does mean that Christians can both require restitution, as well as when you've done wrong, you want to actually offer restitution. So that's what's going on here. So that's what it means to right the wrong, three steps to it. The second part here is what it means to fan the flame. He's going to build on this in the next passage. Now remember, these are summaries of what the priest is to do regarding the different offerings we've already talked about. So here he's going to go back and say, Hey, priest, don't forget that the Lord spoke to Moses said, command Aaron and his sons, the priests, saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. This goes all the way back to chapter 1. The burnt offering is what I call the housewarming gift. It's the knock on the door of God's house and saying, God, I'd like to spend some time with you. I gave it the idea of putting on a sports jacket before you come into a nice restaurant. You need a covering, not for your sin, just a covering so that the commonplace come into sacred space. So God is saying... Don't forget that before you get to sin offerings and trespass offerings, you need to make sure that you keep having that gift offering or that entrance knock on the door offering going. Here's how he says it. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth. So imagine this being the altar out in the, the main area of the tabernacle. It shall be kept burning on it all night until morning. So you've got to keep that fire going. And not just during the night, the fire shall be keep burning during the day as well. It shall not be put out, and the priest shall burn on it every morning. So you burn it all night, another the fire goes, burn it all day. It shall never go out. The idea here is that while you are giving your sacrifice offering or your trespass offering, you need to fan the flame. The priest had to make sure this fire never went out. This is what gave you access to sacred space. Now, when you move to the New Testament, there are some similar ways in which God calls us to fan into flame. Like even Paul uses that phrase when he says, Timothy, fan into flame your spiritual gifts. The idea here is that even though you have peace with God through his sacrifice, you need to keep the fire burning in your relationship with him. And some of the ways we do that as followers of Jesus is that we keep the fire burning through regular Bible study. We don't study the Bible so we can check off a list. It's a way of fanning the flame of saying, God, remind me what sacred space is like. Remind me ways in which I'm common space. I mean, do you feel like you have a regular diet, some regular way that you're intaking God's Word to fan the flame of your connection with Him? Not so you get to heaven more, but so you know Him, you know His ways, you learn to love Him. Bible study and creating a habit or discipline is a way that we fan the flame of keeping it going day and night. For others of us, it's prayer. In fact, like part of the incense altar was that there was always smoking coming up from the incense altar, and the goal here in the sacred space was that smoke ascended to God as a reminder that people were constantly in prayer. The prayers were always ascending to God. Do you feel like you have a pattern that your prayer life is constantly burning to draw you in to know the heart of God? Maybe fasting is the way you keep the the flames burning in your life. Like even this time of Lent, maybe you grew up with the idea of giving up meat for a certain season. So just giving up meat so you can check the box, use those grumblings or longings for candy or longings for meat when you're eating fish to say, God, in the same way I love meat, I want to love you that way. When you skip a meal and go without a meal and you'll feel your st- stomach grumble, it's a way of saying, God, I want my stomach to grumble, I want my heart to grumble or long for you the way my body is grumbling or longing for food. And certainly financial giving is one of the way that we fan the flame. If you don't have a regular practice of giving a percentage or a portion of your income to God, you're missing out on a way to deepen your faith. Because part of fanning the flame is a regular practice of saying, God, everything you've given me is yours. And I want to give back to you a portion as a way of saying thank you, of saying you're the number one in my life. That you're the one that I'm entrusting. That's what these practices were doing. It was to fan the flame to remember that God has allowed us to enter into sacred space. So that's what's going on here with fanning the flame. I read a a book, or an excerpt from a book, from uh, The Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham. And there was a guy named uh, Robert Cooley, who had just become seminary president at uh, Gordon Conwell. And Billy Graham showed up and He said, Billy, what what should I do? I've never been president of this large of a seminary. And Billy would have had lots of examples about how to manage or lots of examples about how to organize, you know, big global initiatives. He said, but the thing Billy Graham kept telling me over and over and over again is the most important thing you'll do as president is to fan the flames of your prayer life, that you will fan the flames of your own spiritual formation That will be contagious. That will be what gives you the energy and the fuel you need to be the kind of president that you'll need to be for this organization. He said nobody else encouraged or challenged him as much about the deeper inner life as Billy Graham did. And that became the foundation for faculty prayer times to really the initiative they had as a school. It began with the inner life, the fanning the flame life. Well, the third aspect here is that we learn how to dine with God Remember, God doesn't just want you to have blind, empty ritual. The whole goal here is communion with God, a sacred meal. So notice here how God wants to dine with you. God wants to have you over for dinner. God wants to be in connection with you. God wants to have a meal with you. So here he begins to give the priest very specific details on this. This is the law of the grain offering. Now, if you remember the grain offering, this was our piece of bread, And it was made from and took a long, long time. Remember, this was like the, the most expensive thing you could give God. The finest of flour that you had to grind and grind and grind. Then you added to that the finest of oil. And so you're giving God your very best oil. And we said there were really no seeds except for the seeds that you might use for planting when you got to Egypt. This is the equivalent of giving God a portion of your 401k, your Roth IRA. And so you were giving God your very best as grain offering, and it was considered the most holy offering. And if you remember from previous chapters, the priest was told to salt it. So you would take a chunk off, and that's the chunk we're going to discuss here, the memorial portion. And this was the portion to be burned before God. And it was to be highly salted, to remind ourselves, highly salted, to remind ourselves that we are in a salt covenant, that God keeps his covenant with us which goes back to lots of passages we spoke about three weeks ago. And you were to take this highly salted portion as a reminder of the salt covenant, and the priest was to burn this portion and not even think about eating this. And so here he's telling the priest some more details about don't eat that portion. Now, you can eat this portion. This is part of the communal meal, which we'll talk about in a second. But you were to burn the portion of the the memorial portion, the remember-to-remember portion. You were to mix it with frankincense and oil. And burn it before God. So, the sons of Aaron shall take from the handful of fine flour, very expensive, the grain offering with oil and frankincense, which is on the grain offering. Shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma. And so God, smelling the smell of burning bread with no leaven in it, accepts that as the most holy way of saying, God, thank you. And shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma, beginning on the day which he is anointed one-tenth of an ifah of fine flour as a daily grain offering. Half of it in the morning and half of it at night. So Now the details come out a little bit more than previous chapters. Half during the day, half during the night. a Constant reminder of the smell of bread. God's accepting of your gift of financial um, offering to him. The baked pieces of the grain offering, you shall offer for a sweet aroma to the Lord. For every grain offering for the priest will be wholly burned, it will not be eaten. Now he's not talking about the whole grain offering, just this memorial portion. Now he's going to keep going on. Now, this is the law of the grain offering, that the remainder of it, the piece you didn't burn up, Aaron and his son shall eat. Because now, remember the priest, like I think about a republic where you have a representative. The priest is your representative. He takes the other portion, bakes it into a cake, and the priest representing you goes behind the veil you couldn't go behind. He comes into the sanctuary, which really means sacred space, the fire of God's presence, a reminder of the pillar of fire. The showbread, a reminder that God made a covenant with us. The incense altar, as a reminder that we are saved from the horns of judgment and that our prayers are acceptable. And now, with cooked bread, the priest eats and dines. He communes with God in what is a communal meal. So the priest is having communion with God, enjoying his presence with the most holy of offering, as a reminder that as your representative, God wants to commune and dine with you. So these are not empty rituals. These rituals point to God's desire to be with you, to have a friendship with you, to have dinner with you, to commune with you, to connect with you, to eat with you. That's the kind of relationship God wants to have. And it's to be eaten, oh my goodness, in the sacred place, in the holy place it says, in the court of the tabernacle, they shall eat it. All the males among the children of Aaron, may eat it. All of the priests to participate in this. And many of you said, oh my goodness, let's say there's, there's a half a million, two million Israelites. How are they getting all these sacrifices done? Well, you got a, about a tenth of the people are Levites and priests. So You've got a, you know, a one to ten-ish ratio of people who are doing sacrifices. That, that tabernacle was busy all day long with all the people coming before God. But he goes on. It's not just this portion um, that you're dining with God. It sort of reminds me because You start maybe see the hint of this toward um, the New Testament, right? The New Testament picks up on this idea of communion or a sacred meal because they start meeting house to house after Jesus goes back to to heaven. And so they have these communal meals. And at these communal meals, they invite their friends over to participate in a communal meal. They want other people to know that God wants to dine with them. God wants to know they can be accepted. God wants to know that he wants to offer friendship with them. So the church starts meeting house to house to house, and they start inviting their friends to their house gatherings. And immediately it's stunning, because in the Greek-Roman caste system, rich and poor never coexisted. And here in these house churches, rich and poor are there. People outside of the caste system are there. People who are one in Christ are there. People who don't yet believe are there. And they're telling their Jewish friends who don't yet believe, and their Gentile friends who don't yet believe, God wants to have communion with you. And they celebrated that. In their homes, as mentioned in 1 Corinthians. So Paul then gives some instructions. How do you reach out to tell your friends about this idea of communing with God? It's a little bit of why, you know, we talk about our Easter celebrations and Christmas celebrations. It's such a great opportunity to invite people to explore the message of whether or not God wants to commune with you. And how you could do that, how you can find forgiveness. We've got communion Easter coming up in a few weeks, and we're doing tickets as usual if you want to invite your friends to it. And what's interesting is some of the things we do in our two-service design is exactly what Paul was telling people to do in the book of Ephesians. Look, he says, speak to one another in psalms. Again, the psalms come out of the Old Testament. When you gather together for a communal meal, you're going to have people who are Jewish who are there sing the psalms from the Old Testament. They're like, wow, you're singing my songs. I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but you recognize something about my songs. And so they would sing psalms together. Then they would also sing in gathering together hymns, which were the new Christian songs being written by those who were followers of Jesus. But he has a third category. He's also when you gather together, make sure you sing spiritual songs. Hymns aren't spiritual. Psalms aren't spiritual. Why does he mention a third category? The spiritual songs are songs with any kind of spiritual connotation. These were the songs that their Greek, Roman, Gentile friends were singing. So if you come to our exploring service or our Easter service, you're going to see a, a blending of our equipping and exploring because we want to sing all the kind of songs that draw people in. Paul will do that in the book of Acts. He'll say, hey, your poets have said, and he will quote the poets, which is why when you come to our exploring service, invite a friend to our exploring service, you're going to hear things by, by Johnny Cash. You're going to hear things by, by The Who. We are doing exactly what... Paul told us to do, which is to use spiritual songs. In fact, if you go to the context of uh, Ephesians 5.18, it speaks there about do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. In that Ephesians culture, people would get drunk and and participate in big rock and roll shows with Dionysus, who is the Greek god of wine, which is why he mentions wine there. In the context of Dionysus, you remember Dionysus was the son of Zeus, the son of God. And so they had lots of songs about the son of god they sang in the greek roman culture he says go ahead and use some of their spiritual songs as a bridge to talk about spiritual matters when you're inviting people into this idea of communing with god in fact martin luther did that Uh, for many of us know a hymn you know a mighty fortress is our god did you know before that was sung as a hymn it had totally different words did you know that was a bar song that martin luther the only place you ever heard an organ was in a bar. In fact, the church fought for years, decades. You were never gonna have an organ in our church. You only hear organs in a bar. But people loved going to the bar, like you might hear the organ at the Reds game. And Martin Luther would go into these bars and see people with their you know, their glasses high singing Dun 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 That's a great song. So Martin Luther rewrote that lyric in the same way and made it into what we know as a hymn today. So, whether we're rewriting songs or redeeming songs, taking something that has a spiritual theme to it, the Bible gives us lots of latitude to use the tools in our culture to invite people into communion with God. Let's read the story of Johnny Cash. Talk about a guy who became a Christian whose music has drawn people in in a way that hymns and spiritual songs haven't. Johnny Cash found himself, despite his fame, despite his money, despite. His name recognition, he found himself wanting to commit suicide at the height of his career. He crawled his way into the Nickajack, the Nickajack caves. He crawled his way into the cave, and there, in the deep darkness, wandering through the labyrinth of the cave, he was about to commit suicide. And he had a a striking—he talks about in his autobiography—a striking sense that God had not left him; that God's presence was with him in the darkness. He fell down on his knees, he said, and it was in that moment he asked God to forgive him that he'd lived his whole life as if his life belonged to himself, not to God. And in this moment, he received Christ's forgiveness and communion with God in a way that none of his other rewards, none of his other things had ever struck him. But now he's got a problem. He's stuck in the darkness and can't get out. He has no way out. He'd come in to die. He says on his hands and knees praying, he felt a very soft breeze on his cheek. And he felt like that was the, the the Spirit, not only saving him from sin, but leading him out. And he literally crawled his way through the cave, and at each new cross point, he would turn his cheek and feel the breeze to know where that breeze was coming from. And literally, the breeze walked him out of the cave. And as he came out, his wife was there, June Carter, a strong Christian, with a family of strong Christians who worried about him, concerned about him, and she brought a meal. They had a picnic together. And he told her about how he'd come to know Jesus. He Then his next big concert would be the uh, Folsom Prison, live, and the music from that would be a platform for him to use his music to draw people to Christ in a way that old-fashioned hymns and music never had. But it was years of relationship building by his wife. Years of seeing something that her family had as a Christian that he didn't that drew him into this communion and connection with God. So that's what we want to do. We want to demonstrate and invite other people into what we found, communion with God. Which brings us to our last point. How do you do the wave? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, Whoever offers a sacrifice of the peace offering... The peace offering, again, was our thank you, God, that I'm at peace with you. Thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for my forgiveness. You you said to God through a peace offering, thank you. But part of your peace offering could also be a wave offering. So you bring to your offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. His own hand shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast, so the breast of your cow or bull, and the breast shall be waved as a wave offering. And the word wave offering literally comes from a Hebrew phrase meaning to lift or to raise. So what is the breast of a cow? The brisket. If you've ever eaten or loved brisket, this was the portion you were to bring. And part of the process of your peace offering is you were to wave it before the people. Look, I have got my very best part of the bowl. I am going to eat and commune with God on. I'm going to take the fat portion. We're going to burn that up. That's the portion we're going to burn before God on the altar. And then we are going to eat together. The priest is going to eat on my behalf the very best portion of the meat, the wave offering. In a society today where we're so private about our giving, God set this up as a way that you want to demonstrate, not in a braggadocious way like, look how much I'm doing, more in a look how great God is that I'd give him my very best. God, I love you. God, I want you to know that you are the number one thing in my life and I'm giving you the brisket. I'm giving you the wave offering and I want you to know you're number one. You're my highest priority. You're my source. You're my security. Giving God the wave offering was giving God the very best of what you had. And the priest would burn the fat portion on the altar, but the breast would be eaten in the sacred space by Aaron and his sons. And if you have never challenged yourself to give God your very best, if you sort of said, hey, I throw a 20 in or a 100 in, or I give a little portion of my percent, I've never gotten to a place of giving percentage offering to God, I'm telling you, you're missing out on a real faith builder. Something happens when you go from just sort of tipping God some sort of a dollar bill to a percentage of your income. Because here's what happens when you give a percentage of your income away. Every time you write that check or let it be auto-debited from your account, you're reminded that is a percentage of what? It's 1% of X. It's 2% of X. It's 10% of X. And every time you write that check, you're like, God, the X is how much you've done for me. The X is how much you've given me. The X is how faithful you've been to me. And God, because you've been so faithful in the past, God, I'm going to continue to trust you for the future. And part of my wave offering here is saying, you are more real, your promises are more real than my bank account. Now, for some of you, you make enough money that if you gave 10% of your income to Horizon, it would actually probably destroy our budget. That would be too much. For others, of you've you never really challenged yourself to give anything. People say, well, how much should I give? And if you want to be sort of an owner at the church, sort of like, you yeah, know, I'm not going to give 10% Chad because that would be your whole budget because of how much I make. You know, some people say, I like to start at what level? And I say, well, you need to talk to God about that. But a lot of the folks who really call themselves investors at Horizon are giving, you know, five or $10,000 a year or more because I really want to be part of what God's doing. So if you're at that stage, or if you're at the stage where you say, I've been given the same percentage, 2% my whole life. Well, certainly, Horizon can be part of that, but look at all of God's priorities. I want to give 10% of my income away. And maybe a portion of that's the church, and a portion of that's for orphans, a portion of that's for other endeavors. But when you learn to give percentages of your income away, I'm telling you God does amazing things in your faith in extending his goodness in the kingdom around us. That is the wave offering. What God's doing here is he's showing us that when we experience God, we want to demonstrate in other people. We want to demonstrate through our giving. I had a friend come to me about a year ago. He said, Chad, for years I've been hearing about the gospel. I didn't really get it. My wife has explained it to me. I didn't get it. I kept coming to the exploring service. And one day, a message, it finally hit me. I didn't have to be good enough for God. He was good enough for me. I don't know how I missed it. You've been saying it. He said, and i got to tell you, I want to be baptized, and i got a chance to baptize him. And he he came to tell me his story. He wrote this check and handed it to me. He goes, uh, he hands me the check, and he talks of totally unrelated things. I said, well, this is a pretty significant check. He said, you know what? I've never given money away. Now that I understand that God's forgiven me and how generous God's been to me, I'm finding myself wanting to give away money. I'm writing a check to you, to my elementary school. I'm going back to my college and giving money away. God is doing something in my heart. I'm feeling such freedom. I remember after his baptism we went to Montgomery Inn, the boathouse, together with all of his family. We're sitting around, some are religious people, some are not, and as they're hearing the story about his journey and his baptism, he says to me, He says, Chad, tell them about that sermon you preached. And so here was a guy who was so excited about hearing about God's grace, he wanted his friends to know about it as well. And so I tried to give a real abbreviated version of the gospel. That's what God's doing. That's what God's doing here. That's what God wants to do in your life as well. He wants us to demonstrate what we celebrate. So four things. I want you to think about each of these four and how you might do it. Number one, do you need to right some wrongs in your life? Are there some things that you need to go reconcile with? Has your relationship with God grown cold? Are you fanning into flame through giving, through praying, through regular Bible study, what it means to really develop a friendship with God? Do you know how to dine with God? See, communion was set up as a constant reminder of the bread and the blood. This started in Leviticus. Bread and blood. A reminder that God wanted to dine with you to pay the cost for you so that you could be in constant friendship and acceptance with him, freed from shame and freed from guilt. Dine with God. Dine with God knowing that you're in forgiveness. And lastly, do the wave. To say, what does it mean for me to give of my very best to God? I'll invite the band to come out, and I'll show you a passage in the New Testament. Jesus, talking about the gift offering, says, if you bring your gift or your burnt offering to the altar, and remember your brother has something against you, not you have something against your brother, somebody has something against you, leave your burnt offering, your housewarming gift offering, and go your way and be reconciled first to your brother, then come into sacred space. And in the New Testament it says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, when you gather people together to celebrate a communal meal, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's not the primary purpose. It's not the ritual. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. People are eating ahead of other people and we're sort of breaking up the body of Christ because I got there first because I got to work quicker. Therefore, whoever eats the blood or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. So let a man examine himself. And let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As we celebrate communion tonight, we're going to give you a chance to come forward and take the cup and take the bread as a community, like they did in the house church. And I want you to take this moment. If you want to come up here and partake of the meal while you're here, that's fine. If you want to bring it back to your seat and do it, I want you to stand and join me. And I'll lead us in prayer. And we're going to sing together. And as the song begins, feel free to come forward and grab a cup and bread and make your way back to the seat as we sing about this new identity we have as a child of God. God, thank you for your communal meal. Thank you for your forgiveness. We ask that you draw us in as we celebrate that we are no longer slaves of fear, but we are children of the Most High God. In Jesus' name.